So have you ever received a personalized letter? And if so, and it was coming from someone that you cared about, did you start reading the letter and then stop after the first sentence? Did you read it one time and then throw it in the trash? <laughs> I mean, if it's something meaningful to you from someone you care about, you probably held on to it, right? You've probably gone back. Have you gone back and read it maybe 5, 10, 20, 100 times? Today, we are going to have the opportunity to look at a personal letter that was written from Jesus to seven different churches. And he personalizes each one to the seven different churches. I can imagine how meaningful that must have been to them, uh, but also to us today as we see ourselves in here. Can you fathom Jesus writing a letter, say, to Gateway Community Church and, and saying, here's what you're doing, Will. I commend you in this. Now, here's where you need to step it up. Like, here's where you're falling short. And that's the pattern for most of these. There are a couple of them where he does not rebuke them for anything, but most of them they do. So we're just going to dive in because we're going to cover all seven letters today. So there's a lot to get through. Um, but we're going to start with the church in Ephesus. Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus begins in, in this section, uh, the, the letter to the Ephesian church, by identifying himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. If you go back to the end of chapter 1, the seven stars were uh, the seven angels of the churches, or, or messengers, depending on how you translate that term. And then he goes on and, and talks about how he is the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Remember, the seven golden lampstands are the churches. I love that. This, it, whether it's the angel or a messenger, could be a pastor or messenger of that church it could be literally an angel but he's like I hold them in my hand I walk among the churches which isn't that cool to think about Jesus is not distant and removed or you know just kind of observing from somewhere way out he says that I'm walking among you he is walking among these seven golden lampstands and because of that that's why he knows the things that he knows and he gets down to very this is not generic kinds of stuff you know that he just says the same thing to each church it's very specific to what this particular church is going through and in verse 2 he tells them that he knows their toil and their perseverance and he commends them for not growing weary and not giving up you know sometimes there's just something to be said for staying in the fight right when it gets hard and when you might be growing a little bit weary, just to hang in there. You know, even if you feel like I'm not doing so great, it's like, hey, you're sticking with it. You're persevering. You're staying with it. And he says that they opposed those who were false teachers. So they had sound theology. But there was a major problem. What was their problem? 
He says that they abandoned, that's a strong word, they abandoned the love they had at first. So do you get the picture of this church? Strong theology, correct doctrine, but their love had grown cold. It reminds me of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. He said, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. I I didn't grow up with a really strong theological background when I was younger because it wasn't until I was in high school that I began to attend church more regularly. So when I felt God's call into ministry, I knew the next step was go to seminary. I needed that foundation, and, and it is important to have a strong theological foundation in order to lead spiritually. But I also remember as I was going, being very aware of a danger that I would be facing. And that danger is it would be really easy to get so caught up in the intellectual side of what I'm learning and, you know, making sure that I'm, I'm learning the Bible and my theology is, is in line and all of that. It would have been easy to get so caught up in that and, and kind of lose some of the passion for God. Does that make sense? Thankfully, there were professors that emphasized both, you know, that said, we want to help you grow in your love for God while you're growing in your knowledge of God. And both of those are important. But what was going on apparently in the church in Ephesus, he says that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. You know, it's more painful to be loved and then abandoned than not to be loved at all. And so you kind of you get a little bit of this, of Jesus saying, look, you used to love me deeply, and now you've abandoned that love. They pro- kept their proper orthodoxy, but their love grew cold. Does that describe anybody today? Anybody that say, you know what, I have to admit, I, I know it up here, I know the stuff, I know my Bible, I know correct uh, teaching from, you know, good from bad and all of that, but my love for God, you know, just that, that white hot love for God has kind of grown cold. Well, what do you do about it? Jesus instructs them a couple of things, he says. First, he says, remember where you have fallen, and then he says, and do the works you did at first. To remember where you have fallen means that you acknowledge, I used to be here, and now I'm here. Right? I've fallen. I'm not at the same height of loving God that I once was. And sometimes that can be a difficult thing to acknowledge, right, to admit. But that's where it starts. We have to be honest and say, okay, I'm not really loving God the way I I used to or the way that I know that I should. And I want to encourage you to be honest with God and honest with yourself about that. That's the beginning point. Now, when we begin to acknowledge I'm not where I need to be, then we're in a place where we're ready to to take steps toward where we need to be. So first of all, he says, remember the height. And then he says, do the works you did at first. In other words, just go back to some of those things that, that enabled you to love God more deeply. We talked uh, a few weeks ago about abiding. You know, and, and, and that, that's an available resource, by the way. If that would be helpful, you weren't with us. I think July 23rd was that date. I would encourage you, if, if you think that would be helpful, go back to that. But just figuring out what kinds of things help us to abide in Christ, help us to, to deepen our love for Christ. I mean, we know there are certain you know, Bible study and prayer and just things that we need to be doing as spiritual disciplines. But 
figuring out how to connect with him uh, in, a, in a deep way. That's what the church in Ephesus seemed to be missing. Let me share one quick application before we move on to the next one. Really what we're talking about here is we're guarding uh, against our relationship with God becoming transactional in nature, right? Like, God, I'll do this for you, and I expect this from you, and all that. That's what he said. Don't go down that road of just doing the right stuff, but make sure that your heart is where it needs to be, and the relationship and the love is as deep as it needs to be. A, a, A great point of application for that is for those of us that are married, the same thing can happen in a marriage relationship. And the Bible often speaks about our relationship with Christ and our, as being like a marriage. You know, it's really easy for a couple, especially the longer you've been married, for that relationship to become more transactional in nature, right? We um, help, we both work, we earn an income together so we can you know, have a place where we can live together and we can raise kids together and we help with the chores. And, you know, it's, we do all of these things to help one another. And that's part of it and that's important. But can I just tell you that if you've lost your love, if you've lost that first love in that relationship, I I urge you, just as in the the relationship with God, we need to go back and rediscover that first love. Man, do the same thing in your marriage. And let us help you. I mean, re-engage starts this week. Please go. That's designed to help foster and and reignite some of that that love uh, that can sometimes slip away. The church in Ephesus needed to return to its first love. Now let's keep reading about the church in Smyrna, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You know, this is one of, of only two churches out of the seven that does not receive any type of rebuke. In fact, he just tells them, I know that you are enduring uh, but then he comes right out and says, you're being persecuted and it's about to get worse. So there's good news and there's bad news for the church in Smyrna. And I think we could apply both of these things to us. But let's start with the good news. The good news is in verse 9. It says, uh, Jesus said to them, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. Now we could spend a lot of time talking about that poverty, but you're rich part. I'm going to skip over that pretty carefully, pretty quickly. But he's just saying, look, you may be poor by the world standards, but you, you're rich. You have me. You're, you really do have riches. But here's the part that, that I want us to focus on. Jesus said, I see that. I know that. See, sometimes when we are going through tribulation, when we are um, enduring difficulty, sometimes it feels like Jesus doesn't even see it. Right? That he's, he's, has he abandoned us? Is he not with us? I mean, I know, we, we know up here, it's like God said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. But sometimes it's just that, does he really know what I'm going through? And if you find yourself in a difficult season right now, and if not, you will, I just want to encourage you with this. He sees you. He knows it. You have not been abandoned. Jesus is, is continuing to walk through those trials with you, even if you're not sure, you know, why is this happening the way that it is? The good news for the church in Smyrna is this. Jesus sees you, knows you, and hasn't abandoned you. 
the bad news for the church in Smyrna is, but some of you are about to be thrown in prison. It's not going to get easier. Now, you might read that, and it's like, what the heck? I mean, why Jesus sees them. He knows what they're going through. Why then would he not do something about it? And it seems that this theme keeps coming up in recent weeks over and over again, that there are times where God does not pull us up out of the trials and out of the persecution. Sometimes he lets us sit there for a while, and there is a greater purpose in that. And he doesn't really answer that question for the church in Smyrna. He just says, I see you, and I'm with you. And it is going to get difficult, but be faithful. And then he says, but you will be rewarded. And the, the reward that he talks about there, he's not speaking about salvation when he says, I will give you the crown of life. He's talking about a reward in addition to that. So this is, you've been faithful, you've endured even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. So stay with it and don't give up and don't become discouraged by the things that you're going through. Let's look at the next church he describes, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name and you do not deny. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Man, twice in one verse he says where Satan dwells. You talk about a difficult place. For a church to exist in the the place where Satan dwells. But man, you want to talk about an important place for a church to be. In the place where it says where Satan dwells. And and when he talks to them about um, uh, where they are, it says, I know where you dwell. It's really interesting. That word dwell is a different word than is normally used when describing Christians uh, in the New Testament. Normally, uh, there is a word that is used that that talks about or it, it really means a temporary residence. This is a different Greek word. This word refers to a permanent residence or a settled place. So here's the message. You're in the place where Satan dwells, and you also dwell there, and you're not going anywhere. You're staying there. I I need you here. This is where you are going to be, and it's important that you continue living there. This is not a short-term assignment. So how do they deal with it? Well, Again, it's, it's interesting to see how Jesus introduces himself. I would encourage you to go back. And I know we're covering a lot of ground today, so there's so much that we can't go into in as much detail as I'd like. Go back and look at the, the way Jesus describes himself to each church. And the way he does that is, is meaningful. In this one, for example, he describes himself as, uh, he says, the words of him who has the, the sharp two-edged sword. In a place where Satan dwells, what is needed more than anything is the word of God. This sharp two-edged sword is, is what Jesus says. That's who I am. And if you recall in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, where it's talking about putting on your spiritual armor, every piece of the armor is defensive in nature, except for one. Do you remember the one? He says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is what? Which is the Word of God. There's one offensive weapon, and that is this sharp two-edged sword that Jesus says, that's me, and, and this is... This is what I'm doing. And so he reminds the people in the city where Satan dwells, I have the power to overcome that. And he commends them. But then you get down into verse 14, which we didn't read that far yet, but he talks about the problem that they had was that they held to the teaching of Balaam. 
Now, what does that mean? Go back to the Old Testament. Balaam was an Old Testament prophet who was hired by Balak, the king of the Moabites, to come and curse Israel. And you may recall this story because Balaam, at first he wasn't going to go, and, and, and then he went, and while he's on his way, there was an angel that God had sent to destroy Balaam for going to, to curse his people. And a donkey that he was riding saw the angel in front of him, got down on the ground, and Balaam, we know Balaam's donkey, right? You may be familiar with that story. He begins to beat the donkey. The donkey starts talking to him and says, what are you doing? Have I ever been unfaithful to you? It's hilarious, actually, if you go back and read it, Numbers 22 through 24. He actually has a back and forth conversation with a donkey. That's Balaam. He goes, he eventually gets there, and thanks to the donkey, his life is spared. But he gets there, he doesn't curse the people. But what he does is he gives the king an idea of a different way to lead the people astray. In fact, in verse 14, when it's talking about Balaam's error here, it says, so that they might, uh, let me back up just a little bit. To put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. See, what happened was they, the, the, the king of the Moabites threw a big festival and they made all this food, you know, food sacrificed to, to idols. They brought in all these dancing girls and the people went nuts. And so they had been faithful to God through the wilderness and endured the hardship of the wilderness. But when they were faced with this little temptation here, they gave in. And that's the real issue here. What he's talking about is a church that when faced with persecution, when faced with the the direct assault of Satan, they're standing their ground. But they are compromising in some some areas. Specifically, he talks about food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality. They let compromise slip into their daily lives. Eugene Peterson made this observation when writing about the church in Pergamum. He said, sometimes it's easier to die for the truth than to live the truth through a dull week at work. And there's a lot lot of truth to that statement. Sometimes it's easier to die for the truth than to live the truth through a dull week at work. You know, I I, I see this happen not only in, in the faith, but I know men who would literally take a bullet for their wife, for their kids, to protect them if they were put in that situation, right? A life or death situation. But they won't come home from work on time so that they can spend time with their wife and their family. They won't put their phones down or turn off the TV so they can actually have a conversation with their family. They won't lead spiritually, in some cases won't even come to church with them. They would take a bullet for them. They would die for them. But they won't do the small things that are so important. This church seemed to be a church that, I mean, when faced with life or death, they're going to stand firm, but they allowed these little uh, compromises to begin to work their way in, and it created some major issues. Let's move on to the next church, the church in Thyatira, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and your faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Again, on the front end, commendation. This is what you've done well. He even says that your latter works exceed the first. In other words, the works that you are doing are growing over time. 
That's a good thing. The problem is, it says you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Jezebel was a name that had become synonymous for, uh, with wickedness and immorality. She was the wife of Ahab in the Old Testament. Her father was a, a priest of Astarte, which was a, a goddess similar to the Greek goddess Aphrodite. There's a lot of sexual immorality involved with worshiping this goddess. And Jezebel protected 850 of the prophets until they had their big showdown with Elijah at Mount Carmel. Then they all got put to death. Um, but Jezebel was a very, very wicked woman. And so when he says here, he's speaking figuratively when he says that you have tolerated Jezebel. It's similar to the church right before it, it seems that they, they were not just making small compromises, but more blatant, allowing more blatant sinful things into the church. But this is the opposite of the church in Ephesus. Remember, the church in Ephesus was your, your, your theology is good, your teaching is correct, your love has grown cold. Now here what we have is he, he commends them uh, for the way that they, uh, th- their love. He says your works and your love and your faith and your service and patient endurance. So it's a loving church, but it has begun to compromise and allow wrong teaching to come in. Uh, it's kind of the, the opposite extreme. And we see both of those. We see Ephesus and we see Thyatira today, don't we? Let me just give you an example, because what he's talking about here specifically, he's talking about the sexual morality, which was the issue with the church in Pergamum as well, and continues to be a big issue for us today. But let's, let's just talk about two different approaches, the, the church of Ephesus approach and the church uh, of Thyatira approach. The, the, just hypothetical scenarios here. A woman who is single becomes pregnant. She goes to a church, like the church in Ephesus, that teaches the truth. So this church preaches against the evils of sex outside of marriage. This same church preaches against the evils of abortion. But when this woman becomes pregnant, she is quickly judged and everyone just basically has nothing to do with her. And they turn their backs on her because of what she has done. They talk about their belief in the sanctity of life, but they do nothing to provide support or resources that would help her keep this child. Um, Their their theology is correct. I mean, it's true. The Bible does speak to the importance of of, of reserving sex for marriage. The Bible speaks to the sanctity of all life, including unborn life. So that's true theology, but the practice is terrible. They're They're not living it out. Then you've got the church in Thyatira, on the other hand, same scenario. Same single woman becomes pregnant. Nobody bats an eye. In fact, they don't really even address those things in that church because their mindset is, hey, it's the 21st century. People are going to do what they're going to do. We're just here to love people. And they tell this young woman, hey, it's your body, your choice. You, know, you, you do what you want to do. Don't let anybody tell you what you have to do or you know, that you need to keep this child. You, you decide. Your body, your choice, you decide. They're non-judgmental. They might appear to be loving, although they've misunderstood what that word loving really means. Because in reality, the truly loving thing to do is to speak the truth. But to speak the truth in love. That's the church in Thyatira. Now, there is a third option. And I hope this third option would describe a church like ours. That certainly is our heart. But a third option is there's a church that teaches the truth. It talks about God's standards. But this same young woman becomes pregnant, the single young woman, she's loved, she's cared for, she's pointed uh, 
to ministries like Embrace Grace. They can come alongside her and walk with her and provide support for her and give her the resources to be able to uh, have this child. Um, both extremes are wrong, right? Correct doctrine without love is bad, but just saying, hey, we love everybody, but we're going to let anything slide. You tolerate this woman, Jezebel. That's not good either. All right, let's keep going into chapter 3. Revelation 3, 1 through 3, and says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. The church in Sardis, it says, had a reputation for being alive, but they were really dead. In other words, this is a church that looked good to everyone else, but when you start getting inside what's going on, you find a lot of rottenness and, and a lot of death. Reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 27, and 28. He said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Guys, this one is so dangerous. For churches as well as individual believers, and that is, hey, let's, let's focus more on how we appear to other people. Let's make sure that when others see us, that, that they think that we are right with God and I mean, please, please listen to me on this. That's not what matters. I mean, if our focus is on looking or appearing a certain way and not really having true life, then, then we've missed it. It's not about how often you go to church or if you're in a connect group or where you serve or how much you give. You know, none of those things are what God looks at and says, this is how I determine if you're walking with me. Now, those things should be an overflow when we're walking with him. But it's not about the external actions. It's about the heart. It's about our relationship with God. It's about going back to the church in Ephesus, about loving God more deeply. And so they have a real issue here. They appear to be alive, but they're really not. And so what's the answer? Verse 3, is, or actually verse 2, um, he, he talks about strengthening. Where is that? That's in there somewhere where he talks about strengthening what is remaining. Find what is alive and, and strengthen what remains while there is still something there. Uh, we, about, uh, I don't know, three or four months ago, maybe a little longer than that, sometime late spring, I decided to uh, order a tree that I planted outside our bedroom. We wanted to get a little shade uh, over our bedroom. And when it came, it was kind of mangled. The, it didn't look so good. I went ahead and planted it anyway. Uh, let the company know. They said, we'll send you another one. So they sent another one. I thought, Oh, that's nice. I'm going to plant the other one over here. And if I can get this one to survive, then I'll have two. It'll be great, right? Two for one. And so um, here's a picture of that first tree. Let's go ahead and see that. It's it, it, it not looking so good. I'm just saying. It is not compared to the second tree. second tree looks wonderful. So it's going to come along and be very healthy. But let me tell you what I'm doing with that first tree that doesn't look so good. I did the, the little scratch test. You know, like you scrape a little of the bark off, and it's still green. So there, there is still some life in that tree. And so here's what I'm doing. I'm watering the heck out of it, and I'm praying like crazy that that tree will survive. See, as long as there's some life, 
you, you pour into that life and, you know, who knows what can happen. Now, if, if that tree doesn't make it, then I'm going to need to start over and either do without a tree or replace it with another one. The good news is this. Even when we're dead, God can bring life out of it. So we never get to a point where we are so far gone that there's nothing there. But as long as there's something, right? It, it, take what, is, what remains, what little bit of life is there, and pour into that and foster that life, and, and God will bring real life out of that. Let's move on to verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the keys of David, who opens and no one will shut. Who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. And here's essentially the message to this church is, I know you don't have any earthly power, but I open doors that no one can shut. And I shut doors that no one can open. And I, I just want to encourage you with this. If you find yourself in a seemingly impossible situation and you feel powerless, listen, Jesus is the one who opens doors that no one can shut and shuts doors that no one can open. One last church, the church in Laodicea. Verse 14, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel to you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to appoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent." Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A lot of us know the church of Laodicea because of the, the, the you're neither hot nor cold reference, right? And, and that's created some confusion. Some people read that and say, that means you either need to be on fire for God or totally against God, one or the other. That's not what he is saying. What he is saying here is that hot is good and cold is good, but lukewarm is no good. And when you think about drinks, think about it like this. Take, take coffee, for example. People love hot coffee. People love iced coffee. Do you know anybody that loves lukewarm coffee? Probably not, right? It just makes you want to spew it out of your mouth. And what Jesus is saying here is not, you know, either love me or hate me. He's saying, you can love me by being hot. You can love me by being cold. But don't be somewhere in the middle. Right? Don't be lukewarm. Because our passion for him is what he desires more than anything else. And if we find ourselves in a place where we are lukewarm, look at verse 20. And I'll end with this verse again. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me the invitation is there again I, I, I've heard this this verse used you know to talk about people coming to know Christ in an evangelistic setting and that's great but he's speaking to the church here he's speaking to his children saying I'm knocking on the door he's not going to force the door down he's not going to bust his way in 
but he knocks. My question for you is this. Has your faith become lukewarm? Has your love for God become lukewarm? Have you abandoned the love that you had at first? Is God's call on your life today to, to renew that first love and to come back into a relationship with Him where you're just giving it all and loving Him with all that you have? Let's pray. Lord, that's my prayer today, that we would love you wholeheartedly, that we would not be lukewarm. Lord, you deserve our best. You deserve everything that we can possibly give. And so my prayer right now is that we give you our best, that we give you everything that we have to offer because you are worthy of that, Lord. So receive our worship, stir our hearts, and draw us to you right now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.